Well, hello and welcome to the Life Church Canton podcast. My name is Jared, and I'm your host for the show and one of the pastors at Life Church. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you are a brand new listener, or maybe you have listened a couple times but you haven't yet subscribed, go ahead and do that so that you can get regular updates from us and hear about how you can get involved. Even if you don't live in the Canton area, you can still get involved in a variety of ways. I want to tell you about one specific way. We do something called the Life Journey, and that is all about how we go about making disciples. And all of our life journey opportunities are uh, having a, a digital opportunity for you to get involved, for you to go through a course to learn how to be a disciple maker. And so you can go to our now page and learn more about how to get involved with the life journey. So I highly encourage you to do that. Also, if you would like to contribute to the work of, uh, of Life Church, you can go to lifechurchcanton.org slash give and give a generous gift to the work that we get to be a part of. And if you do decide to do that, I just want to say thank you uh, for making an impact. Uh, it truly helps out. Uh, we are in a series called Cross Equals Love, and uh, you're going to hear a sermon from Pastor Daniel Fegbui, and we've been going through 1 John chapter 3. He's taking us into the next part. And so I hope you enjoy this message. Our text today is found in 1 John chapter 3, in verse 4 through 10. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure that no one deceives you. One who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who was born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil were obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother or sister. Amen. Father, we thank you so, so, so much. We thank you for your word. We thank you that even now we stand firm in your truth. And Lord, we pray, as we've prayed so many times, that the spirit of the living God will use the word of God to reveal the son of God and the will of God, and that everything we do today will be done to the glory of God. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Please be seated. How you doing, Life Church? All right, okay, okay. Oh, good. Sun's out and fun's out, right? Amen. Thank God for the sun. Well, last week we kicked off our series, uh, our Easter series, right? Uh, Cross equals love. In this series, we look at the sacrifice of Christ as symbolized in the cross. And it's this instrument of pain, this instrument of cruelty, which now represents the greatest expression of love that the world has ever seen, is what we celebrate throughout this season, the weighty reality that God became man and lived the perfect life that we could not, experiencing the just punishment that we deserve 
is worthy of our continual remembrance and celebration. In fact, I personally cannot ever stop celebrating and remembering the sacrifice of Christ, the liberating love of God that we see in the cross. How about you? Question for you. Do you appreciate the magnitude of God's love as expressed in the cross? Or, in the words of the blues singer B.B. King, is the thrill gone? This brings us to our text today, which is found in the first letter to John. First letter of John to Christians who are spread throughout Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Paul, uh, John writes to them, John, an eyewitness of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The lone survivor out of the 12 original disciples, John pens this letter to expose, assure, and to remind. He writes to expose false teachers and their false teachings. He writes to assure Christians, to assure the church of their identity in Christ and their salvation in Christ. He writes to remind us, remind them of our love in God. That God has so loved us. He writes to expose, assure, and remind. In fact, in the opening verse of chapter 3, the verse that the chapter we're in today, John writes of the great love of God, a love that is not only seen in the incarnation and death of Christ, but it's also seen in our adoption as children of God. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we would be called children of God. And this is what we are. We have been adopted into the family of God. And we have not just been adopted by name alone, but we have become born again, blood-born, children of God. Our very nature is being changed and has been changed into the nature of God. We are children of God, not simply by name, but by nature. Question for you. Are you a child of God by name only? Or do you know that new nature in God with new characteristics and new desires? Pastor Nathan spoke about this title, this name, Children of God, last week. So if you haven't had the privilege to check that out, check that out. It's on our website. Look at it. It's a great background for even this sermon. But today, what we're going to do is we're going to look even more deeply at what the love of God, which is demonstrated in the cross, has done for us. The cross, the greatest expression of God's love, has liberated us. But what has it liberated us from? What have we been saved from? Well, first, we've been liberated from the practice of sin. You see that in verse 4, 6, and 10. Look with me, if you will. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin equals having no law. Verse 6, no one who abides in him, him Jesus, no one who, who abides in him sins. And no one who sins has seen him or knows him. And verse 10, by this, by what? By living righteous, by abiding in him, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not Love his brother or sister. Verse 4 and 6, 
show us a contrast between two groups of people. And verse 10 explains the identity of those two groups. Look at verse 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. You see, as far as the Bible is concerned, as far as God's concerned, there's only two groups of people. You're either a child of God or you're a child of the devil. There is no in-between. There is no half-stepping, as it were. There are no gray areas in that sense. There's two categories of people. Furthermore, these two categories of people, children of God are described as those who do not sin. Children of the devil are characterized by people who do sin. You feel the weight of that? If you're reading that, you may find it troubling. It says that children of God, those who have been called by God's name, those who have been saved, they don't sin. Those who do sin are children of the devil. I might be able to understand how you feel. When I first read this verse many, many years ago, I was instantly depressed. I began to call into question my identity in Christ. I had to ask the question, was I even saved? Because this text says those who are children of God do not sin. Is that what you see in your text? I questioned my faith. In fact, remember earlier I said that this letter was written to assure the believers? For a letter that was written to assure you of your identity in Christ, you sure missed the mark, John. If you were trying to make me feel good, John, you need to go back to literary class or something. You missed the point. I was broken by this text. In fact, if not for the grace of God, I believe that could have been the end of my faith. You see, the weight of not being able to live a perfect, sinless life weighed on my very soul. God doesn't grade on the curve. And the fact that I am being told that only children of God, only those who don't sin are children of God, called into question everything I held on to. So how do we reconcile this? How do we understand what John is writing here? Well, for starters, let me say this. What this text is not saying, actually, is that Christians are sinless. Wait a minute. That's what it says. What this text is not saying is that Christians are without sin. You're losing me, preacher man. That's what it says in the text. What it's not saying is that Christians have sin. Our common experience and our common sense has shown us that even on our best day, we miss it. Amen? That even on the day where you got everything right, you still got it wrong. Imperfection is a human condition. In fact, the Bible is clear that all humans, including Christians, sin. Is this a contradiction in the Bible? In fact, this common human condition John himself, in this same letter, this same author, in chapter 1 says this. Listen, if we say, in verse 8 and 10, 
that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Come on, John, help me here. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, for all the skeptics out there like, yep, told you, the Bible contradicts itself all the time. You know, Christians say, God is good all the time, all the time. And then people outside would say, God is a liar. The word contradicts itself all the time. And all the time, it contradicts itself. Seems like an apparent contradiction. How do we reconcile these two polar opposites? Do we sin or do we not sin? Am I a child of God or am I not a child of God? Let's look back at verse 10 of chapter 3. How do we resolve this? And I say this not to make you feel bad, but it's actually very simple. To understand this verse, you have to understand the usage, Now, I don't want to get too technical, but the usage of the Greek present tense. You see, in Greek, the present tense usually shows ongoing, habitual actions with no end in sight. In other words, what this text is saying is that Christians are those who don't go on continuing in sin. I'm going to unpack that a little bit more. You see, so while Christians sin, that's a truth. In fact, the Bible just says, if you say you don't sin, you are a liar, and the truth is not in you. While it's true that Christians do sin, I'm a witness personally of that. Amen? Anybody that works with me is like, yeah, yeah, brother, we see your sin all day long. And I just saw yours, too, because you're judging me. Amen? So why is it that you would say this? Well, Christians do sin, but here's the thing. We are not to be characterized by a life of ongoing, habitual rebellion against God. Does that make sense? So it ain't like you're perfect. You read that verse, you're like, yep, told you, baby, I don't sin. Ah, you're a liar, and the truth is not in you. I didn't say that. No word said that. All humanity apart from Christ are slaves to sin. Apart from Christ... We are slaves to pleasures, to our sinful preferences. We're slaves to a sinful lifestyle that goes against the very word of God. On the opposite, those who have been saved by Christ, those who have put their faith in Christ, those who are children of God who have a new name and a new nature are no longer sin, slaves to sin. They have been freed. In fact, Romans chapter 6 is a great passage if you want to unpack it. Look at verse 12. Look at verse 14. And even verse 6, look at verse 6. And we know, now we think, not we guess. This is a certainty in God. We know that our old self was crucified with him, him Jesus. So then, sin will no longer dominate us so that we would be enslaved to sin. Amen? Verse 12. Therefore... Because of what? Because of the freedom we have in Christ, because of the cross, because of his salvation of us. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you would obey its desires. It assumes here now that you have a choice now. You don't have to submit to sin. So listen, if you have an addiction, a hang up or hurt, I want to let you know in Christ that you have been freed from the power of that. Doesn't negate the reality of what you're experiencing. I know, amen. But you need to actualize what God has purchased for you in the cross. Sure. 
as a Christian. Verse 14, sin will no longer have mastery over you because you are now under grace. Translation, if you are under the mastery of sin, it's because you're choosing to, not because God didn't free you. Let me make that make sense to me. You're not hearing a preacher who says he's figured it out. You're hearing a preacher that knows the power of sin, even after salvation. Amen. Because you got saved and you got real good and everything got perfect. Amen. Is that your experience? Ain't mine. In fact, mine is I felt more the power of sin after salvation. Because now my new nature started to kick in and say, you didn't have to live that way. You remember Steve Urkel? Remember how when he got irritated, he would say, I don't have to take this. I'm going home. That's your cue to sin. I don't have to take this. I'm going home. Let's look back at our text. See, according to God's word, the distinction between the children of God and the children of the devil is that the children of God are no longer slaves. They're no longer bound to ongoing habitual sin. They are no longer living a life of open and increasing rebellion against God. So the cross, the greatest act of love, the greatest act of love that human beings have ever experienced liberates us and continues to liberate us from the practice of habitual sin. Point number one. But what else has it liberated us from? And before I even say that, let me ask this poignant question. Are you still a slave to sin? Do you feel powerless against sin? Or have you experienced the liberating love of Christ? If your answer is no, stay tuned. Because at the end of this sermon, we will share with you how you can experience liberty in Christ. So what else has God liberated us from? Secondly, he's liberated us from the penalty of sin. So he's liberated from practice of sin. He's also liberated us from the penalty of sin. Look with me, if you will, in verse 5 and 8. You know that he, Jesus, appeared in order to do what? To take away sins. And in him there is no sin. The text of the Bible says it in another verse this way. He made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we can become the righteousness of God. In other words, there is a substitutionary atonement that happens where he takes your place on the cross, the death that you deserve, the death that we deserve, and takes it on himself. But yet he is without sin before and after the cross. He's perfect. So he says, he appeared for what reason? To take away sins. Verse 8. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose. To destroy the works of the devil. John gives us two reasons why Jesus came. In fact, Matthew chapter 1, a pivotal verse about who Jesus is and his name, says he shall be called Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves. Why? Because he will save and deliver his people from their sins. The gospel is not that Jesus came to make your life better. 
to increase your portfolio financially. It's not that he came to make you feel even better about your sin. It's not that he came to behaviorally modify you. It's that he came to give you life. And he does that by taking away the penalty of sin. John says he comes to take away sins. How does it do this? He does it by dying on the cross. He removes sin and all its consequences. But then the second part is also interesting. He died. He came and died to destroy the works of the devil. You see here to destroy is a very interesting term. It means to unbind, to untie, to loosen. Jesus' death, his work on the cross unbinds us from the works of the devil. By the work of Jesus on the cross, he's loosened the grip of Satan. There is a truth when people say the devil made me do it. There is something true about that. It doesn't remove comparability from you, but you understand that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, Ephesians chapter 6, but against principalities and wickedness. So there is an influence of the devil in the world, and he does it to pull us further away from God. But just what is the work of this devil? Hebrews chapter 2, 14 says it this way. You don't have to turn that way. But it says that the agenda and the work of the devil is to cause death in all human beings. It's to bring death to all human beings. The works of the devil is to use sin to entice and entrap us so that we are bound by sin and away from God. Jesus, in his infinite love, came down to free us, to liberate us from this dismal faith. Jesus liberates us from permanent and deserved punishment and separation from God. Gospel shows God's grace and God's power and God's love that Jesus came to liberate us from this ultimate penalty of our sin, to release us from the sentence and the prison of death so that we can have eternal life in Christ. And eternal life, John himself says, is not in the future, but it starts now. This is why as a church we are driven by, amen. We'll do that one more time. This is why as a church we are driven by, amen. It's at the very heart of the gospel is a new name and a new nature. This is what it means to be liberated from sin, to be liberated from the penalty on sin, that we who have put our trust in Christ Christ himself bridging the chasm that exists between all humanity and God. Every other religion has us trying to work our way to God. Christianity is the only one where God said, you can't do it on your own. I got to come down to you. It's the gospel that God didn't leave our salvation to incomplete, fallible human beings like us, but took it on himself because that's the only way that he can ensure that it works. Question for you. Do you have a saving relationship with God? Are you assured that you've been saved from the penalty of your sins because you've put your faith where God put all your sins on Jesus Christ? Or will you permanently be separated from the love of God? God who loved you so much that gave his self for us. What else has he saved us from? He saved us from the practice and the penalty of sin. He saved us, thirdly, from the preference for sin. 
a desire for sin. We see that in verse 7 and 9. Look with me, if you will. Little children, make sure that no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is. Makes sense, because like Pastor Nathan said last week, if you are now a child of God, then a child looks like their daddy. Yeah? So if we go to Maury Povich, the test should come back as God is your daddy. If we go and the test says, we don't know. It's a maybe baby. You know what a maybe baby is? Maybe his, maybe his, maybe his. It says, little children, make sure no one deceives you. There's a deception going on in the church. That the one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Verse 9, no one has been born of God. No one who has been born of God practices sin, continues in ongoing, unrepentant, rebellious sin against God. Why? Because God's seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has a new nature. He has been born of God. When you see he here, is he and she, okay? Just understand that. Verse 7 warns us, warns Christians then but even now to not be deceived by false teachers and their false teachings, teachers who say it doesn't matter how you live, God loves you anyway. Doesn't matter how you live, God loves you the way you are. And that's true, but he loves you enough, as David says sometimes, our David here, not David in the Bible, but our David here. I know it's hard to get them mixed up sometimes. But David here says one thing that I love so much. The first time I ever met the brother, that's how I knew I loved the brother when I met him. He says, God loves you enough. God loves you the way you are, but loves you enough to not leave you the way you are. Good God. This is a love that transforms and liberates. But these false teachers in the church would say, hey, man, listen, God loves you the way you are. You don't have to change nothing. You don't have to do nothing. You don't have to rest in his power. You can just be as filthy and as disgusting as you want. God knows your heart. A statement that's usually said to excuse sin. He knows my heart. Friends, you know my response to that? And that should scare you. That God knows your heart, your intentions, if your wife knew everything you thought about. Okay. If your husband knew everything you thought about. If your parents knew everything you thought about. If you knew everything your children thought about. These false teachers said your lifestyle didn't matter. Such a teaching is consistent with what we call Gnosticism. You don't need to know all these terms, but I just want to give you the backdrop for this. Gnostics, in general, they believe that all matter, including the human body, was evil. And that the only thing that was good about people was their spirit. And so there was two extremes. One extreme, the ascetics, you don't need to know this, but just know what they mean, what, what, their, what their philosophy is. One says, you know, since all the human body is bad anyway, doesn't matter what I do with the body. So I'm going to go ahead and treat it harshly. And I'm going to beat it. I'm going to starve it. I'm not even going to care about it because it doesn't matter. The other extreme, antinomians, which literally means anti-law, they held the view, too, that all of matter was evil. And since all of matter was evil and then matter, the human body was separate from the soul. So it didn't really matter what I did with the body because all matters was the spirit. So then I could have all the sexual immorality I want, all the drunkenness I want, all the partying and pleasures of sin that I want, because guess what? Doesn't matter. 
for them, the Nike slogan from back in the days, if it feels good, do it, was the paradigm for them. So you had these two extremes. John seems to be talking to the second extreme here. The day had said, hey, man, you could live in unrighteousness. You could live in lawlessness. doesn't matter. You're a child of God. You don't have to resemble your daddy. The fact that you're called by him alone means that you could do whatever you want. So whatever feels good is godly. Interesting. You may be tempted to think that this is back then and this doesn't invade our churches today, but it does. It does invade our churches today where we cause people to say, hey, 30 years in the faith, it's okay that your porn addiction is still prominent. I used to struggle with that. It's okay that your sexual immorality is okay. Your drunkenness, your lifestyle that is unbecoming of the gospel, your lifestyle that actually causes people to push away from the gospel, it's okay. God knows your heart. I need you to understand this. This isn't a cause and effect. This isn't that I live righteous, so therefore I'm saved. It is that your living righteous shows that you're saved. Do you understand what I mean there? You are not working for salvation. You are working from salvation. In Christ, your new nature has equipped you with the power to say no to sin. So you're not trying to earn salvation. You are, Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 Working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because God is at work in you, giving you the power and the will to do what is good to him. You got these two extremes that still exist even today. They would say your actions don't matter. How you live your life don't matter. How you order your steps don't matter. God knows. We see this also in how we treat each other. We live with each other in a way that God has clearly said is not right. We hate each other. Next week, Pastor Jared is going to be preaching on love and hate. You will see that a major characteristic, and I hope I'm not bleeding into your sermon, Pastor Jared. Sorry about that. But a major characteristic of our new nature is love for all people, especially for brothers of faith brothers and sisters in the faith. In fact, if you look at the end of verse 10, look at what it points out there. It says, by this you know that the children of the devil and the children of God are obvious. And then it goes further, it says, who righteous is righteous. But at the very last, what does it say? The one who does not love his brother and sister is not a child of God. Part of the penalty of sin and part of the preference of sin and part of the practice of sin is hatred against other fellow believers. It's seeing yourself first as a political party before you see yourself as a Christian. Seeing yourself first as an ethnicity before you see yourself as a Christian. That's what sin has done to us. It has not only put a chasm between us and God that we can never traverse, it's also put a chasm between you and I that we can never, ever traverse. But, for God. But for God, who brings people who don't look alike, think alike, together. 
So he has liberated us from the practice of sin, the penalty of sin, and even the desire for sin. God's word doesn't mince any word. It calls such thinking that thinks that you can live however way you want. It says it is incompatible with your Christian identity. In fact, this is the entire argument of all of 1 John. 1 John itself as a whole, if you look through it, makes distinctions between love and hate, light and darkness, children of God and children of the devil. It is a test of our Christian identity. If you read through 1 John, you will begin to check and say, am I in the faith? John writes it so that without a shadow of a doubt, you will know that you know that you know that you belong to God. Not because you're earning it by your actions, but because his power in you, the new nature produces within you a heart that desires the things that are pleasing to God. Amen? Verse 7 and 9 shows us these two different identities. And it calls into question the salvation and the identity of anyone who claims to be a Christian but live a life that is anti-Christ. God's word says that our lifestyle does matter. And only does our lifestyle matter, our desires matter. Verse 9 says that those who are born of God do not continue to live in or desire unrepentant sin. You see, the terms born of God and children of God all refer to the same people. The people who, through the work of Christ on the cross, now have a new nature with new desires and new preferences. Christ not only has liberated us from the practice of sin and the penalty of sin, but he's also liberated us from the desire and the preference for sin. We no longer as children of God, prefer a lifestyle of sin, but we prefer the will of God. And he says that he will abide in us because we abide in him. And why are we able to abide? He says because his seed abides in us. Well, what is that seed? First Peter chapter 2 says it this way. The seed is this incorruptible word of God. The word of God, the gospel that you receive, that you believe, is the gospel that continues to sanctify you, set you apart, and move you into glory. Praise God that it's not a one-time salvation. That he doesn't just save us once and leave us to our own vices so that we can get back into the very thing that necessitated his saving. But that the word of God that we believed at first continues to work in us, perfecting us, making us to look more and more like our daddy. This is the gospel that he continues to give to us what we need in order to please him. Question for you. Is your lifestyle pleasing to God? Or do you live as though your conduct and desires do not matter? In conclusion, the cross, the greatest expression of love that we've ever seen has liberated us from the practice of sin. We are no longer slaves to the power of sin. It's liberated us from the penalty of sin. We are no longer bound to a dismal destiny of death. It's liberated us from the preference of sin. We no longer desire sinful lifestyles because we have been reborn. Our identity is new. We have been made anew in Christ. So perhaps the biggest question of the day is, do you know the liberating love of God? And if you say no... 
Today is your day. Speak to him even now. Now I have a few action steps for us. First, I want to encourage you to invite as many people as you can to this Easter series so that they may encounter Christ, but even more specifically to Easter service on the 4th. They have three different services, 9.30, 11 a.m. and 12.30 p.m. Come on down, in person or online, worship, get to know Christ. Because you know most Christians are CME Christians anyway, right? You know that? You know what that means? They show up on Christmas, Mother's Day, and Easter. So you already got this easy for you. So just reach out and say, hey, your third installment is due. (laughs) So invite somebody. Secondly, read 1 John. Short read, five chapters. Read through it. Not to depress yourself, but to know who you are in Christ. To know what the cross has given you. What the love of God has liberated you from. My people, the word says, perish because of lack of knowledge. Know your identity. Thirdly, I want us to, as a church and as a people of God, get into the habit of daily confessing our sins. Husband to wife, wife to husband. But more than that, confessing it to God. It is a great spiritual discipline. It keeps you humble before God. Trust me, when you are confessing daily your sins, you are a lot more gracious to people. You start to really see great. You you will shift from, can't believe he did that, to I would have done worse myself. It puts before you your sins, not in a way that demoralizes you, but in a way that causes your heart to be humble and see the best in other people. Fourthly, fourth action step. And I want you to stand with me while we do this. I want us to enter into a time of reflection. For some of us, church is about the only time we get to talk to God. Not judging, just being honest. I too run, sometimes run the guilt of only getting into the word when I'm studying. It's a hazard of the job. You sometimes only get into God's word when you're planning to preach. And so sometimes we only relate to God, connect with God in these spaces. I want you now. It doesn't have to be loud. Please don't do it loud because I don't want nobody judging. Talk to God. Begin now to talk to God about unrepented sins in your life. 1 John chapter 1, verse 10 says this way. If we confess our sins, confess, homologia, it means to say the same thing that God says about your sin, about your sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us, but not just forgive us alone, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the only reason you wouldn't confess to God now is because you are calling him a liar and you are saying he is unfaithful and unjust to forgive you. Friends, there is no sin that the blood of Christ can't wash off. And there is no bondage that the cross of Christ can't break. I know the pull and the power of sin personally. 
I know how it erodes my soul. I know how it distorts who I am. And I know the freedom from it. It's our moment. Talk to God. Close your eyes, whatever makes you feel comfortable. But confess even now unrepented sin. And maybe one of those is the sin of not being willing to talk to God now. As David plays, let the lyrics of this song wash over you. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer real quick. If you don't know Christ, or you do know Christ, but wherever you are, you know the power of sin. You know the practice of sin. You know the penalty of sin. And you know a desire, propensity towards sin. Your prayer is easy. Lord, save me. Save me. Fill in the blanks. Save me from sin. A sin that so erodes my vision of you. A sin that makes it difficult for me to see my brother and my sister as fellow human beings made in the image of God. A sin that has caused me to not see my own self as being made in the image of God. The cross, that gaudy, bloody, painful, cruel cross that Jesus hung on for you and I has become the symbol of the greatest love that the world has ever experienced. Talk to God now. Father, it is my strong conviction that you are still freeing us from enslavement to sin. Enslavement to what the world says is our new nature. As your servant Nathan said last week, you have given us a new title with new truths, yet we continue to submit to the truth of the world, telling us who we are, defining us as though they get the final say. But in the name of Jesus, they do not get the final say. You do. And you have declared us as free. And the word says, whom the Son has set free, Come on, people. He is free indeed. Amen. Well, thanks again for listening. One of the things that sticks out to me in Daniel's message is this uh, idea of confession. It's kind of been a bit of a lost art, I would say, specifically in the evangelical church. Um, I think if you maybe grew up in a Lutheran church, a more traditional Lutheran church, or maybe even a Catholic church, you, you probably practiced some confession. And uh, I think this is, a, a, like I said, a lost art. And uh, it's, it's important for us as followers of Jesus to regularly be together, to be in confession, uh, because there's a sense of healing and freedom uh, and liberation, as Daniel mentioned, that comes with that. And so I want to encourage you to do that. If you don't have people to do that with, reach out to us. We have pastors that would love to talk with you and process through things with you. Um, And you can connect with us by filling out a connect card on the now page. 
Also, I want to encourage you to visit easterlife.com. That's easterlife.com. That's all about our Cross Equals Love series, as well as some information about Good Friday and Easter and ways for you to get involved and invite others to get involved, whether they live in the Canton area or they live in Montana or Illinois or somewhere far away. Um, they can still get involved. We hope you have a wonderful rest of your day, wonderful rest of your week. We hope to see you soon.